we have none other than what we call the up-and-coming band. Yeah. Let's hope when they're on their way up, I'm with them. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, please, for Homer. Thank you very much, indeed. Thank you, Jack. Uh, yeah, we're going to start with a couple of Mel Haggis songs. It's 1985, and Homer Country Band are playing to a packed crowd. The room is hot, and the air is filled with the smell of beer and cigarette smoke. The sound of a dull thud, so loud it almost overpowers the band, is heard. That sound is the sound of leather cowboy boots, stamping on the sectional wooden floor underneath. Over in the corner, the dimly lit stall sells Stetson hats and English tribute versions of Apache-style Indian beaded clothing. In the heat of the tightly packed club, among the belt buckles and silver ball skull rings, the smell of oil fills your nose. But this is not just the smell of oil that repels you as soon as it hits your nostrils. This is the smell of a dream. A dream that's within reach of a nine-year-old boy, with no money and big dreams. For this is the chance to become a real cowboy. With replica Smith & Western guns that are placed like cattle on the prairie, just below the glistening bowie knives with the faces of dead Indian chiefs on them. With Homer in full swing, the dance floor fills with people young and old, tall and short, and many of them seem dressed in the customary outfits an answer to the names of Texas Pete, Bronco and Calamity Sue. Now this might all seem fine for the plains of America or Texas, but this is the English plains, the Thames Delta. And despite the music's origin being 3,000 miles away, it seems that people all over England can relate to this music that culturally and historically doesn't match their own. Yet this doesn't stop country and western clubs popping up all over the country. So with LA glam bands and English art pop bands like Tears for Fears riding high in the charts, how did this mix of British country become such a big attraction? Now, you might be wondering, how do I know all this happened? Well, I was there. I was the nine-year-old boy, and my dad is the drummer of Homer. But as I got older, I stopped going to gigs, as my mates, girls and cars and money came into my life. I was distracted by things that teenagers consider important. But my wild weekends at the country clubs became a familiar and fond memory. But as I got older, and in my absence, I didn't notice the change in the country music scene which in my ignorance of relying on memories was still flourishing in my mind. But it wasn't until a recent conversation with my dad in the pub over a pint that he told me he wasn't working that much anymore. I forgot that times change and people move on. But due to my early love of this toe-tapping, yee-hawing, fake gun-wearing community, I thought I'd find out what happened to the English country music scene over the years. I'm Rob Burgess. Please join me in the US of UK. But first, let's go back. Anyone growing up in the 50s and 60s would know that's the unmistakable voice of the Skiffle King of England, Lonnie Donegan. Now, Skiffle was the mix of jazz, blues, and American folk that any band could try, as you can make and play your own instruments, such as the tea chest bass and the washboard. Skiffle was a huge hit in England, and teenagers up and down the land were forming their own Skiffle bands, such as one in Liverpool called the Quarrymen, who, after a lineup change, became the Beatles. But I wanted to know where it came from. How do we start hearing this music which we adapted? I asked author and DJ Graham Leaves. After the war, loads of American air bases from the war and the, the, the soldiers, uh, they brought records over. Liverpool were a big place because the Merchant Navy, the big ships came in, sailors into America and such like. 
they brought records back. I mean, you talk about the old vinyl in the 50s, 40s, 50s, bringing them old shellac records. So they came in and people started picking up, hey, what's this? Have a listen and, oh, can you get me some? Next time you go over there, oh, it's going to be six months. Right, I don't matter, you bring, bring me what you can find. No, I don't mind. Now, another thing you had was two-way family favourites on a Sunday on the radio, and it was between England and Germany, and they had two presenters, and the, it was the part of the British Army base over there. Of course, the Americans were over there. Elvis went, did his, his time in Germany. So I, I would say early 50s, could be uh, late 40s. So with Skiffle in full swing in the 1950s and early 60s, and even Cliff Richard and the Shadows, with their electric guitar-based country track Apache in the charts, Ask the members of Homer Country Band, what were your first influences? My uncle Don. Robbie Burgess. Scribbo, his name. My first recollection was your cheating heart by Hank Williams when I was a wee lad. Flip side, a teardrop on a rose, which I still play to this day. I would say uh, Marty Robbins. I heard a Marty Robbins song. Dave Paisley. Called Tonight Carmen. Up to then, I was out and out Elvis and nothing else until I heard that and uh, I thought, wow, country music's good. And uh, used to go to the, the local club in Tilbury, the railway club, and catch a guy named George Moody most Fridays. And uh, that's where I got my inspiration to have a sing, you know. So basically, that was it, really. So with Skiffle, with its roots deep in Appalachian folk, I asked Robbie Burgess, what's the difference between folk and country? None. I don't think there is a difference. Folk, you get Appalachian folk. Country styles sing Appalachian folk country. No, it's no different. It's just that you put a different angle on it. It's how you sing it. So we've heard titles like folk and skiffle, but I was curious to find out where the name country and western came from. So I asked DJ and writer Graham Lees. Originally, it was like the Carters and uh, such like came over to Bristol and they played uh, Jimmy Rogers. The, the, there was uh, a mobile recording and a lot of their singers and whatever, they came and they did these recordings and it was uh, Victor Records before RCA and it was classed as hill country music because they came from up in the hill country. The Western comes from the Western swing charts in the 40s. Clumped together, you got country and Western. They chopped out the hill, they chopped out uh, Western swing, the swing, and they called it country and Western for sure. So that's how the name came about. So, so far we got some influences. We got the folk and the skiffle, and we've even found out how the name country and Western came about. But now I'm curious as to why English people like country so much. I think it started with... um... Jim Rees, Patsy Cline, that kind of so-called country music. I say so-called because I I don't class that as country music. It's more like middle of the road. But at the time, it was was Nashville sound, they called it. And it was easy listening. And I think that's when it... In this country, not in America, you go back a long... Before that in America. But in this country, I think... Yeah, Far and Young with four in the morning. It was all that easy listening country stuff. And I think that's where in this country it started. When we started in a band called um, Aubergine, when Robbie joined us, we then kind of swung to the country. But mainly we was doing that kind of pretty, pretty Jim Reeves, John Denver, that kind of country, you know, which uh, it's nice stuff. But I like a bit more roots to it at the moment, you know. But I think that's where it started, the Jim Reeves era. 
I think. Country singer and songwriter Liv Austin. I think it does really depend. I think there are a lot of people who are like me who just love the lyrics, you know, who love um, the honesty in the lyrics um, and the uh, universal themes, you know, stuff we all go through uh, that it covers, you know, the the harder sides of life, you know, like loss and heartbreak and and that kind of stuff. And sometimes that there's humor in it as well. I think that's what I really love, and I think that's what a lot of people. Maybe that's a, that's the thing that really sits well with with British the British audience is that there's a lot of humor in the in the music, and and people kind of do warm to that. Um, I think for some people, like some kind of dream they have of of an American way of life, maybe like the Southern states, and like kind of a, a lot of people want to really want to go there and see how it is and, and kind of live that life. And and so for some people, I think it is maybe that appeal to if they listen to someone like Blake Shelton or you know that kind of stuff, they're maybe more into the the lifestyle, the country lifestyle, and and. I think, you know, when you go to, to C2C, for instance, you know, at the O2 in March, I think you see a lot of those people who are interested in the whole cultural aspect of country music and not just, just the songs. Uh, so I think it, it really depends who you ask. Presenter and DJ, Bob Preedy. I think British people sense this sort of history of country music, which essentially came from Scotland and Ireland, and it went travelled over to America when immigration and so on. And, and we, we sort of still relate to that sound, which is personal songs. Um, and I think the songs that really hit are, are the ones like songs that Jim Reeves did, Welcome to My World and I Love You Because and Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man, Johnny Cash, uh, Ring of Fire and so on. Um, and Boy Named Sue. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of very... Uh, appealing songs and the fact that they're country I don't think really mattered at the time it was just, it was just uh, uh, that people liked that sound uh, but a lot of the time it didn't lead to them becoming country fans they just buy certain songs at the time well I say a lot of Englishmen went out years and years ago and even our friend uh, who used to sing in, in all the clubs around here was uh, Carl, he used to sing and he, he actually played on the ground I rock band. Now he used to fetch the, the music back to us. And that's how you got to learn all about it. And don't forget the Irish influence, the folk. That's where it all stemmed from. Mm. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. So we've heard where people get their country and western influence from, from records. But I was curious to find out if there was a large number of people that were influenced by television as well. Due to the Queen's coronation in 1952, TV sales went through the roof and nearly every home had one for the first time. And with British television being in its infancy, we imported a lot of programmes from America. If you was a kid in the late 50s, early 60s, you couldn't get away from this theme tune. Bonanza was a larger-than-life TV Western series that ran from 1959 to 1973. Featuring such characters as Ben Cartwright, played by Lauren Green, Bonanza focused around the adventures of Ben Cartwright and his sons as they run and defend a ranch while helping the surrounding community. Now, what young teenager couldn't fall in love with the idea of riding horses and shooting guns? 
So in the 1950s with programs like The Lone Ranger played by Clayton Moore, and in the 60s programs like Bonanza, Gunsmoke and Rawhide all over the television, I wonder if this somehow saturated into the young country musicians and people following the country scene. Clint Eastwood in the iconic 1966 movie The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. As well as the film, the theme tune is iconic itself. The minute you hear it, you know what it is. It's a western, it's moody, and there's probably going to be guns and horses. So with music and film and television playing interlinked with each other, it's no surprise in the country really started to saturate England. So let's move forward into the 70s. To me, this is the point when country really became big in England. County, and I drive the main road. In the late 60s and early 70s, country music really began to change its sound. Gone were the days with the dust bowl sound of just a guitar and a bass and a vocal. Now it was lush strings, orchestras, and high production value spent on each song. There was a name for this sound, it was called contrapolation. And with this radio friendly sound in the early 70s, English people took to it like a duck to water. But what about the musicians and the DJs and presenters? Did they think this was a good thing, this lush, large sound bringing country to the masses? Or did it hinder country by taking it away from its original roots? I did like some of them. Graham Lees. I mean, you had what they call the middle of the road and Glen Campbell. I liked a lot of Glen Campbell's stuff. It was really, it wasn't um, the hardcore country. It was, uh, like you say, it was middle of the road type things. Um, Ray Price moved from dressing up like a, a cowboy in the rhinestones and all that to dinner suits and bow ties and such like. I can't stand it. I think it's. It was started mainly by Atkins, producer, guitarist extraordinaire, obviously, but he was also a Nashville producer. And he created his Nashville sound with the strings and and almost choir-like harmonies and, say, Jim Reeves and Glenn Campbell and things like that. And they were all doing that sound. Um, no, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I like, get rid of all that. Still guitar, fiddle, obviously, you know. But strings, nah. Well, it's hard to say because the new stuff is some very, very good stuff out there. But... The old stuff was good as well, but it didn't do me any favours as a drummer because they wouldn't use drummers on the Opry. Or they, there wasn't such a thing. Western Swing didn't have drummers. So in that respect, it got us work, drummers. <laughs> Country music goes in huge phases and at certain periods throughout its history. And it was, it was sort of selling country to an urban audience. And so, some people just didn't like that. And each artist... Uh, had to work to that format 
and at some like Johnny Cash rebelled, Waylon Jennings rebelled, Willie Nelson rebelled, um, and went their own way. And this uh, this clique in in Bakersfield, Mel Haggard, Buck Owens predominantly, uh, later Dwight Yoakam, um, kept a sort of freshness about their music and didn't follow the trends. Consequently, they were sometimes in vogue and other times they're out of vogue, uh, which uh, when they were in vogue, it upset the power in Nashville. So it, it's always been a sort of a release valve to, to, to work in, in Bakersfield. And, and the, it's much more stripped away country. It's much more authentic, you know, tend to record around one mic, a whole band and, and singers, whereas country is more the pop. They'll record one section, the uh, backing and add, add, add vo background vocals, and they'll add the main vocal and so on, and, and mix it a lot more. And it, it's the Bakersfield sound has that live feel about it when you when you actually listen to it. Chet Atkins was once asked, "What is country music?" and he took a handful of coins out of his pocket, rattled them in his hand, and said, "That's country music." And that's what it is. It's about selling. The big record companies, the big companies in Nashville are only there to make money. They're not there to give you good music. They know what they can sell. That's what it's all about. So opinions are divided as to whether this was a good thing or not. But with the songs getting much more radio-friendly... Country music soon became a big business and this didn't go unnoticed by the film industry. And in 1977, they released this classic bubblegum movie. He's bound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like a bandit run. Smoking the Bandit starring Burt Reynolds and Jackie Gleason is a classic film featuring fast cars, lorries and a love story as well as comedy. But what about other country flavoured films that had a social impact on country and the viewers that are watching it? Yeah, open the audience a bit, yeah. Uh, tongue in cheek, a lot of it. But a lot of people started listening to the music, Jerry Reed and Johnny Cash. And, yeah, I think it done it a lot of favours, yes. Definitely, I think, yeah. Convoy. Um, yeah, I suppose Smoking the Bandit as well, but... The song Convoy, I think, certainly swayed, oh, that's what country is, is it? It's not really, according to me, you know. But the general populace thought, oh, I like that, you know. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I'd have to say, yeah, certain films did push it in, into the public eye a lot more, you know. A lot of uh, Clint Eastwood films had, had a country soundtrack. Um, and he has an ear for music, and he, he and he did pick some uh, excellent ones. Uh, the, the big film, though, that really set country music alive was *Urban Cowboy*, John Travolta film. Um, but but the idea of um, going going to clubs and line dancing and going on the mechanical bulls and playing snooker and boozing and neon lights and it, it was just fantastic. Uh, I think I think it was filmed at uh, Mickey Gillies club uh, and, it, and it, it really was a, a breath of fresh air line dancing and, uh, and people going to a club and having that social aspect to it as well um, uh, so 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 any all of the films I mean Cat Convoy 
um, was a massive hit over here from Urban Cowboy onwards. That scene set the seeds for, for line dancing over here. But in clubs, there's a listening club, you know, where people sit there politely, seated and, and listen to a band. And there's a line dancing club where you dance to the music. And some artists refuse to play to a line dancing audience. Some clubs that mixed it found that audience members resented either having to listen to the music or to the dancers. So it was terrible conflict um, in, 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 in an awful lot of clubs and it was never resolved. So, you know, they started having separate a line dancing night and a listening night, but there wasn't enough people to sustain two nights and it, it became became a real real dilemma for, for clubs and certainly some artists just if, if you mentioned that they would like you to play two or three line dancing songs just refused it was it was bad set. I was curious to find out why people like line dancing so much. So I asked dance teacher Amy Flight. Well, first of all, line dancing is really fun to do. Um, so I often do it at the beginning of one of my dance classes with the students. And it's a good way um, to do gentle aerobics to get the students nice and warm before we begin the class. What's really good about line dancing is it's got a social aspect to it. So people from all ages can come and join in. So children from three years old up to people that are 80, if not even older, can join in with line dancing, which is fantastic. There's obviously also health benefits um, for line dancing because it is a gentle aerobic. So it keeps you kind of going. And even if you've got some small injuries, you can still do line dancing. Usually you do line dancing for the whole track. So that a usual track is about three minutes. So you dance for that whole three minutes. So it keeps your blood going throughout. So line dancing also includes repetitive movements, which makes it quite easy for people to join in. So even if you don't have as much dance experience, you can still do line dancing. So that's some of the reasons why line dancing is popular. But how do the musicians feel about this? If anything, it's made it more popular because everywhere you go is night line dancing clubs. But it's all disco. Help to kill it. <laughs> Little Billy Rock was designed for one thing, line dancing. Uh, Cotton Eye Joe is old, old, old. Before it ever became a line dance song, it was an old song. So I didn't mind that originally, you know. But things like Hillbilly Rock, when they came out, you know, I think... It disgusted me, to tell you the truth, because that was the start, that, and um, Achy Breaky Heart, it signalled the death of country, as as we know, on, a, on our country scene, and in the, the line dance music section of it, which is not country, you know. I don't think Ilbilly Rock has got a country note in it, it's just taking the mickey, basically. Uh, they must be laughing all the way to the bank. The rednecks one, yes, it had it, it had a country edge, but it somehow it didn't seem country to my ears. And and they, the the uh, Emmerdale lot, um, it just seemed a commercial cash in to me. But even though people 
did buy it and enjoyed the single and the CD. And it was almost, I thought, done as a joke, really. You know, a satire on, on country music. That, that, but, that, you know, that's, that's a personal opinion and good luck to people who, who bought it. So line dancing is not only the friend, but also the enemy of country and Western music. I wanted to find out how difficult it was to line dance. So I asked dance teacher Amy Flight to show me some moves. Now, first of all, we went through it slowly. But this is what happened when we tried to do it fast. Okay, so Amy's going to very kindly teach me some dance moves. What are you going to teach us, Amy? Uh, today I'm going to teach you the watermelon crawl. Awesome. Also with us is Carl as well. Uh, uh, Carl, are you much of a dancer? Uh, no. But like me, you've probably got two left feet. Okay, Amy, so if you want to teach us. Right, here we go. Okay, so this is our intro. Then we start five, six, seven, and toe, till shuffle, toe, till shuffle. Step and go. I'm facing Five, the wrong way already. Step, kick, break, Carl, I think we had the best idea when we just stopped and let Amy do it on our own. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just started watching, yeah. I think watching's a lot easier than taking yeah, part. Yeah, it is, yeah. So, yeah. to be fair, there is quite a degree of skill. I mean, it seemed that once you were saying the names of the moves, it was easier to, like, if you was in a club and someone was going watermelon, they would know what that is. Absolutely. So there are set routines that people know. I've kind of thrown you in completely at the deep end with this. So if you went to any club and they were saying watermelon, uh, hilltoe, everyone would know what that is universally for, um, for a move, for a new dance. If you said, I've written a new dance and you went in and just said, right. Absolutely. So if I went in and I said, oh, I've got this new routine and I've called it the Robbie Burgess. <laughs> and I started teaching it and I yell out a grapevine. Then a heel dig, people would know what I'm doing. It would take a little while for um, everyone to kind of really get the routine, but once they've done it a few times, it just keeps repeating. So then it's fairly easy to kind of remember, and it's all about movement memory. I couldn't line dance as a kid, and I definitely still can't line dance now. The move seems so fast and complex, I just couldn't get my mind around it. But then again, I am a bit of an idiot. You're listening to Liv Austin. Like the Shires, Liv is one of the brightest stars in the British country music scene. So line dancing definitely didn't help with the purists that just wanted to hear pure country music. But maybe it's not the clubs that are the problem. Maybe it's the music. I asked Liv, has country music become a cliche of itself? Oh my God, yes, absolutely. When uh, when you hear some of the stuff that's being played on country radio, uh, and I'm talking especially about like the young male solo artists and, and some of the stuff um, is very country, but it's calculated, you know, that it looks like they've got sort of a list of words that need to make it into the song. But they have to mention at least once, you know, and it's kind of cut off jeans and it's cherry chapstick and, and all that kind of stuff. And you can just go, I've heard this a hundred times before. Definitely. Dave Paisley. Yeah, they, they've all got the same drawl, the singers. Personally, I can't tell one from the other, really. You know, they've got the same draw. The production is all the same. The lead guitarists all sound the same. I'm not saying all sound the same notes-wise. Tone-wise, all sound the same. The drummers all sound the same. It's just a plasticness about it all. There's no soul, I think that's what it is. But what's happened, I think, now is a repeat of what Jack Atkins did back then with the Nashville sound and earned multi-millions for Nashville, you know, and for the record companies and all that, with the Nashville sound. And that's what's happening now. They've got this sound now that is earning millions with girls with calf jeans and 
and all this look like rock chicks. Well, go and be a rock chick then. But I don't think when this phase is gone, it's not going to go back to my kind of country. It's my age, I think. It's just I love that kind of music and it's pretty much lost it now. Yeah, but it's always been that way. You can't. It's not a cliche. It is. That's how it is out there. People sleeping on the sidewalks for six months just trying to get a gig. That's the way it is. It's, it's a big country and there's loads of country stars out there we've never heard of. It's always the, the dilemma between artistic freedom and, and commerciality, really. As American music developed, it became more and more business orientated. So if there was a certain trend, uh, you all had to follow it. And that was the trend in the 70s and in the 80s. So it seems through the 60s, 70s and 80s, country music has refined and changed itself to give the public what it wants. Whether this is good or bad, it's good business strategy. Now, let's not forget that the country and Western music industry is a business and it's there to make money, just like any other music business. But what about the clubs that supported this music in the first place? Will they ever make a comeback? No, I don't think so. I think uh, most of the, the people that loved our kind of music are my age and older. I don't think it's ever gone away. It's always been there. But I say through line dancing, the only thing that's gone away is the actual live bands. But we still will go out and play it live and we meet a couple of other bands that do it live and we still love every minute of it. It is easier to get people who are sort of 40 plus to come out to tons of gigs. I think they are more just ready to kind of leave their house and pay for music and, and just things like that that they think of as normal. Whereas maybe my generation are more like, you know, there's music everywhere and you don't really pay for it. And there's this awful thing that's kind of happened where it's just so much music to take from and that it's, it's kind of just hard to, to get people out. I get the idea of line dancing and I get why it would be popular. I don't know what's hurting country more. Is country generational? Did it have its day and has it passed? Or is line dancing now merging so much into the mainstream that they consider this country? Will bands ever rise again given that it's cheaper to have an MP3 player and just a room full of people dancing in lines? I hope so. My childhood memory of these clubs is something that I could never replace and I really hope a younger generation gets to witness as well. The subject of country and western music is a huge, huge topic and I tried to fit as much as I can into this documentary. I need to thank everyone that contributed to this. Robbie Burgess, Dave Paisley, Graham Lees, Amy Flight, Liv Austin and Bob Preedy. You can find more about Liv Austin at livaustin.com. This was the US of UK, I'm Rob Burgess and this was an old Dolly production.